during these weeks of summer, we as a congregation have just been looking at some of the parables that Jesus told, not in any particular order and honestly not for any particular reason, but just to explore together some of the things and the ways that Jesus challenges us through this method of teaching. The parable that we're going to look at today is from Matthew 21. The parable itself is rather brief, but to set the proper context to understand it, we're going to be backing up to verse number 23 and reading through verse 32. If you're looking that up in your pew Bibles, it's on page number 982. Otherwise, you can easily follow along with the screen behind me. From the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 21, starting at verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And the man went to the other son and said the same, and his son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Truth be told, I think this is applicable to almost any human relationship that exists, but I think it's especially noticeable in dating relationships. Especially in the dating relationship, there are those moments that help you to understand a little bit better exactly where this relationship stands and where you are in the eyes of the person that you are dating. So, for example, it starts at the beginning of the relationship when you start to notice that the person finds ways to sit near you more regularly, moving away from their friends, that they laugh more regularly at all of your jokes, that they choose to spend time with you over spending time with their hobbies. And in recognizing those behaviors, you say, nah, maybe, maybe there's something here. 
On the flip side of that, as you get into the relationship and later on you start to look at things and analyze things, the person may still say that they love you. They might still be giving gifts to you, but you notice that they're not calling or texting as frequently as they used to. And they are choosing to spend more time with their friends than they are with you. And in watching those behaviors, despite what they say, you start to think, I wonder where I really do stand in their priorities, in their heart, and where this relationship might be. And you start to question if there's room for moving forward. Now, as I say, I think that's apparent mostly in dating relationships, but it happens in the parent-child relationship as you move through different stages and you see how they respond to you say, okay, we're, we're in a different zone here now as a parent and as a child. And it also happens in our relationship with God. In the end, it's not so much the words that we say or what we proclaim about how we feel about someone. Our true feelings, our true priority of that relationship will get revealed through our actions. The parable that Jesus tells that we're looking at in Matthew 21 this morning is in an essence about our relationship with God and what a genuine relationship with him looks like. And when you look at the whole thing, to be truthful, there's not very many mysteries to this parable. First of all, we get an awful lot out of the context of this parable, which is why I did read those preceding couple of verses, and we could have gone back even further. But back in that day, if you were to ask the average person, who has really good relationships with the Lord? Who do you look to as examples of people that love him, that know him, that want to serve him? And without a doubt, people would answer, oh, it's the Pharisees. It's the chief priests. It's the elders. It's the religious leaders. Clearly, we watch them and everything that they do and everything that they are and everything they want to be known as is in relation to their connection to God. And so they would be held up as examples and models. However, when we get to the start of our passage, these are the very same people that we find questioning Jesus, challenging him, and doubting him. If you're going to even go before that, you'll see at the beginning of Matthew 21, it starts with the story of the triumphal entry. That great moment, just a less than a week before Jesus is killed on the cross, when the crowd seems to recognize who he is. And he comes into the city riding on a donkey to shouts from the crowds, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And then right after that, Jesus goes into the temple. And he clears it of the money changers and those that are buying and selling things. And the chief priests and the elders, they liked none of it. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these people are saying to you? And then on the next day when Jesus returns, the part of our text that we looked at, they approach Jesus and they want to know, by what authority are you doing these things? Tell us, who gave you the right to do all of these things? To receive this praise? To walk into the temple like you own it and kick people out of it? Who do you think you are? 
And in answering those questions, or in being asked those questions, Jesus doesn't really give an answer. Instead, he flips it on them, and he asks them a question about John the Baptist, a question that they refuse to answer. But in many ways, as we go through the context, we realize that this parable becomes Jesus' answer to the question that they ask. And the question isn't really so much of where do you get your authority from, but in seeing that Jesus has authority, chief priests, elders, how are you going to respond to that authority? The parable itself is, again, pretty straightforward, but with the usual surprises and exaggerations that help to make the point that Jesus is trying to communicate. There's a man who has two sons. And he goes to the first son and he says, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Now notice this isn't a request. This isn't a suggestion for a son that's sitting around waiting for something better to do. This is the command of a father. There's work that needs to be done in the vineyard and it needs to be done today. So I am telling you, go and do it. And back in that society, especially then today, there really was only one answer to the command of a father. Yes, sir. And then to go and do it. But that's where we get the first surprise of this parable because that's not the answer that this first son gives. Instead, he says, I will not. And that is a totally shocking answer. There is no respect offered. There is no excuse even given. It's just a flat-out, contemptible, buzz-off, pops. Don't tell me what to do. And yet, despite that disgusting answer initially given, later on he changes his mind. And he goes that day to the vineyard and he gets to work. Having been disrespected by the first son, the father goes to the second one and commands him to do the very same thing. And now we get the kind of answer we expect. I go, sir. Yes. And the word, sir, you're my father. I will respect this answer. It's the only right answer. The title is offered. That is the kind of answer any father would want to hear. But despite the great answer, and because of, despite the good work, words that came out of this son's mouth, he too has a change of heart, and he never shows up the vineyard, never does the work he was told to do. That's the parable, and then in transitioning toward application of the parable, Jesus asks the chief priest and the elders directly, which of these sons did the will of the Father? And it's not an easy question to answer. Neither one of the sons is guiltless. Neither one is a model child that you would hold up as someone that is exemplary in any way, shape, or form. They both have obvious flaws and things to criticize, and yet... In the end, there really is only one answer to that question. Despite their very different initial reactions to their father's command, it was the son that eventually actually went to the vineyard and did what his father command that could be said that he did the father's will. 
actions were more important than words. And that's the answer that these people give to Jesus. And this is where Jesus continues his application. Without explicitly saying that this is what he is doing, he helps us quite a bit in identifying who he is referring to when he created the character of these two sons in his story. The first son, he says, is like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, earlier in this sermon, I posed a hypothetical question. If you would have asked people at that day, who's in a close relationship with God? Let me flip that question. If you would have asked people at that day, and who are the people that obviously reject God in every way, shape, or form, their answers would have definitely included the tax collectors and prostitutes. First of all, tax collectors were tax collectors. You had to give them money to give to the government. That alone is enough reason to hate them. But what is more is that they were seen as betrayers. They were often Jews that were working for the Romans. And in a divided and divisive context that they were in in this society, they were seen as rebelling against their own people and joining the side of the bad guys. And what is even more than that, they would use their position to abuse their power and charge more than the required amounts of tax, pocketing the extra amounts that they got and passing on the rest to the government, making themselves rather wealthy. They were skimming off the top and everybody knew it. But who are you going to complain to? They've got connections. And prostitutes... Well, we don't need any historical context to understand who and what they were. They were doing the very same thing that they do to this very day. And yet, as clearly as these people were rebels against God, Jesus says that they were entering the kingdom of of heaven ahead of the chief priests and the elders. They are the first sons. They were obviously and obnoxiously disrespectful to God and his words and their commands. In their professions, they had clearly said to God, don't tell me what to do. No, I'm not going to obey. And yet, despite those words, when they heard John the Baptist and his call to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, They listened. Many repented. Many went to him and were baptized, and they did believe that call, and they listened to the invitation to live a new way of life. And through those actions, they obeyed. Which clearly leaves the chief priests and the elders as the second son. Again, they are the people that people looked at as model followers of the law of the Lord in how they dressed, how they lived, how they talked in public. It was clear that they prioritized their relationship with God. It was clear that they were the ones that would say, I go, sir, giving the right answer to God's commands. But also, Jesus is clearly implying that they are at least something that they are leaving undone. That despite the words of obedience, there was something in their actions that they were missing, that they were falling short on, that was turning their words into empty lip service. 
Now, admittedly, because of the context and the explanation that Jesus gives, all of the things that I've said so far is the really easy work of this message. He did all the work for me in explaining, identifying these characters. The challenge of this passage comes in the remaining two areas. The first question being this. In what way did these exemplary religious leaders fall short of obeying God? Where was that area that they had said yes, but did not follow through in their actions? Which leads to the second major challenge, and how does that challenge us? How are we supposed to hear this parable and apply it to our lives today? So let's dig into that first question. How had these religious leaders fallen short of obedience to God? I don't want to restate it too much, but again, don't miss the fact that that would be a very hard question for almost anybody to answer. Where were the Pharisees falling short? In fact, they would probably stand in front of anyone and tell me, tell me where I've sinned. Try to show anything that I've done wrong. I've lived a good and righteous life. That's all that I dedicate myself to. And it would have been very hard for anyone to find an example. So where did they fall short and when? And again, in the context and the application, we see that the answer likely revolved around the response to John the Baptist. Jesus said that they had the opportunity to also hear what John was calling all people to do. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And be baptized. And what is more, they saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes going to John, being baptized, and that their lives were being changed. And yet, when they heard that call, they thought, well, I don't have anything to repent of. I don't have any need to be washed. It's the prostitutes, the tax collectors. They're the ones that need to hear this message, not me. And what is more, well, what do I have to associate myself with this man, John the Baptist, through this baptism? I've already been circumcised. I am a follower of God. I have all the evidence that I need. And so when they saw what was going on and they heard the invitation of John, they rejected him. And that rejection of John was a pretty telling about their real relationship with God. As long as they were able to take care of themselves, to be good enough, then why would they need to repent to be washed? And what is worse, in rejecting John's message, it leads them to also reject Jesus. Again, in his triumphal entry just the day before, the people had recognized and given testimony to who Jesus was, and they could clearly see this about them. He was different. He spoke with authority. The miracles that he did were miracles no other human being could possibly perform. They demonstrated the fact that he was not only different, but that he was God's son, the long-awaited descendant of David, the Messiah. His authority is amplified when in his righteous anger over what was happening in the temple, he cleanses it. And yet again, Despite saying that they lived for God and wanted to know him, to live for him, and to serve him, 
when God showed up and gave them the opportunity to respond, they questioned him, they challenged him, and they rejected him because in their minds, they had no need for him. But they did need him. They needed to repent of their arrogance. They needed to repent of their self-righteous pride. They too needed a Savior just as much as the others. And connected to that final mention of, of the others, that also seems to be the area where Jesus was challenging them. You see, there were people in society like the tax collectors and the prostitutes that desperately needed to hear the message of repentance and a new way of life that they could walk in. And yet these religious leaders had distanced themselves from those individuals. They thought anyone that hung around with those sinners were clearly sinners themselves. Part of the reason why they felt right in, connect, in, in discrediting John and Jesus in their actions. They rejected those people. They isolated them because they wanted nothing to do with them. And in rejecting those people, they also were rejecting the work of the Lord. And so where had they fallen short? It was in two areas. First, in their own call to repentance, in recognizing their own shortcomings, their own hardened hearts against the work of God. And secondly, in rejecting the invitation of God to reach out to the lowly, the outcast, the needy in society. And because of that, despite their proclamations, I go, sir, Jesus says your real relationship with God has been revealed through those actions and those choices. You're not doing the will of your Father. But that only answers one of the more difficult questions, and this is now leads us to the real hard one. In light of all of that information, how does this apply to us today? And most pointedly, in this illustration of two brothers responding to the command of their father, which brother are you? Which am I? Now, without being reiterating too much, to be clear, that question doesn't get answered in your head in church this morning. Here, that answer is easy. We want a relationship with God, and so we say, you are my good, good father. I'm loved by you. I go, sir. You, are, you get ready. Oh, you did. Get ready, and you showed up here this morning. Isn't that enough to show that you want and have a relationship with God? No, that's not the, when you answer that question. The real answer won't come in words, but it will be revealed in actions. Your real answer to the question of which brother are you will be given when you face temptations this week. And you are forced to choose between prioritizing your relationship with God or giving in to those things that your flesh is drawn toward that you know and have been told in his word will harm yourself and that relationship with God. 
But when facing that temptation and in making that choice, you will reveal which one is more important. Your real answer will come when you are convicted of your sin. Will you deny it and minimize it and downplay it and say, well, yeah, I messed up there, but that's nothing compared to what those people over there are doing. And if they can get away with that, then surely God can't be all that upset with that little tiny thing that I did. And so I'm going to downplay my sin rather than confessing it, rather than repenting it, rather than admitting that I need a savior. And again, as we prepare our hearts to come to this communion table next week, I think that's especially important. Because you cannot properly come to this communion table saying, I'm good. I'm doing things the right way. We only come to that table saying, I need this. Because I am a sinner and I need a savior. And then our real answer to that question about which son we are will come when the opportunities are presented to share that hope with the undesirables and the outcasts of our society today. When you bump into someone that's got the opposite political party that you are affiliated with, do you dismiss them and disown them as someone who obviously is deceived and on the wrong side of things and shouldn't even be bothered to talk with? Or do you call them into a relationship with the Lord? When you find out and interact with someone who's same-sex attracted, do you just write them off as a clear sinner, a rebel against God, someone who has no hope? Or do you point them to the same hope that you found in Jesus Christ? When someone comes to you and they say, I'm broken, I'm lost, I need help. Do you just mumble your way through something or do you say, I have a savior who loves you, who wants to call you by name and point them to that hope. Words are easy. A relationship with Jesus is easy in this place. But that doesn't, this doesn't define the relationship. You will decide how important your, your relationship with God is in all of those different choices that will come. When he invites you to go and work in the vineyard today because work needs to be done, what will your actions be in answer to that invitation? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, all of us sit before you as sons, none of whom is exemplary, all of whom who has faults. All of us have rebelled against you in different ways, have failed in upholding and maintaining our relationships with you. Which is why we begin by thanking you for the gift of your son. How Jesus came to this earth and not only especially received the praise of the crowds on this triumphal entry. But who went to the cross, sacrificed himself and bought us with his blood. Redeeming us from all of our sins. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, as we celebrate what you have done for us, I pray that our eyes would be open to the harvest that is before us. That we would go forth and we would share the hope with others. And that when you invite us to go and to serve in the work of the vineyard that needs to be done, 
that we would prioritize our relationship with you and not only say yes, but respond in action and in deed. Lord, open our ears to the calls that you give to us this coming week. Give us the strength through your Holy Spirit and the guidance and the words to say that when you call, that we will follow. All this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.